If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For too long, Indigenous people have been marginalised or viewed merely as passive participants in the history of the United States. That's one of the arguments Ned Blackhawk makes in his sweeping new account, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. Ned spoke to Matt Elton about how Native Americans played key roles in everything from the course of European colonisation to 20th century bids for equality and self-determination. I'm joined today by Ned Blackhawk to talk about his book, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History, um, which is a really expansive, comprehensive sort of reimagining of US history. Before we get into some of the particular historical episodes you explore in the book, I wanted to talk a bit about some of the verbs in the title there, because we've got rediscovery and we've got unmaking. And I wondered how central those ideas were in the writing of this book. The term rediscovery and unmaking may seem potentially as somewhat oppositional and or um, contested um, bedfellows, so to speak. But I think uh, the, as the introduction kind of um, establishes, there's a series of labor uh, or work that needs to be done to really move American historical inquiry into really the 21st century more fully. And that is to kind of discard some of the interpretive tools that have kind of structured uh, American historical inquiry throughout much of its history and or particularly through the, throughout the late 20th century and to reimagine or rediscover um, 
the subject matter in new and exciting ways. So I'm simultaneously kind of suggesting that we unmake some of our temporal, spatial, and kind of binary racial uh, paradigms and to uh, try to rediscover the heterogeneity and diversity that is at the core of North America's historical experience. It also seems important to give Native peoples an active role in this story. Do you think there's been a tendency in scholarship, in history, to sort of flatten these stories or to tell the stories only in one certain way? Uh, I do. And um, you're picking up on a really unfortunate theme and kind of paradigm of American historical uh, study, and that is the either one-dimensionality or the ahistorical kind of homogenization of the diversity of Native America, both historically and contemporarily speaking. And so this book is attempting to give a kind of broad, uh, multi-century overview of the particularly uh, contiguous uh, continental U.S. historical uh, narrative and to place indigenous agency and historical development at the core of these centuries' historical developments. So, and as as you and many of your listeners may know, uh, Native peoples have been um, not just written out of history, but presumed to have limited either cultural, intellectual, or kind of social capacities for much of the last multi many centuries of uh, European and North American intellectual history. Uh, these are the kind of quintessential peoples without history, according to Hegel, or peoples caught in the uh, kind of primitive form of naturalization, according to kind of countless anthropologists. Heading back then to explore some of the historical episodes you cover in the book, you write that European contact sent shockwaves across Indigenous homelands, reverberating in many forms, some of them undocumented. I thought it would be really good to sort of unpick that a bit. What were some of the ways in which Native people felt these shockwaves? Really, from the first months of the Spanish encounter in the Caribbean, following Columbus's first and subsequent voyages, uh, throughout the 1500s and the exploration of Floridian uh, panhandle um, into the American Southeast, across the central Mexican Nahuatl or Aztec kingdom, into uh, northern Mexico and into what is now the American Southwest, uh, European intrusions uh, radically um, disrupted indigenous economies, uh, lifeways, and particularly um, kind of demographic horizons through the introduction of various new forms of uh, violence, um, enslavement, and most notably uh, diseases. So uh, really, you can't tell the history of the United States or the history of North America outside of these uh, disruptions, these reverberations, these shockwaves, these kind of uh, expanding spheres of disruption. That's not to say Native peoples were entirely displaced or disrupted by these uh, waves of uh, turbulence, but the, the sentence that you quoted from is from a part of the, of the study that's really trying to uh, ground these subjects at the heart of particularly regional analyses of early American history. How common was violence across these diverse experiences? You know, I'm uh, somewhat of a, I don't want to say polarizing figure in this subject, but I do have a certain degree of potential, perhaps uh, infamy in certain scholarly circles for some claims that I overemphasize the degree of violence that 
Europeans brought. Many anthropologists, archaeologists, and other uh, what are known as ethnohistorians have kind of uh, taken some caution to some of my suggestions in my earlier works about the uh, prevalence of what I call pandemic relations of violence. I'm actually um, glad that you asked that because this work is not inherently about uh, the violent nature of European colonialism, though that's a central theme. Um, and it now invites me to kind of meditate back and reflect on some of these earlier themes that were in my first book called Violence Over the Land. If you look at particularly like chapter three, which is on the formation of New France, as, as it's known, or and centers on uh, French and Iroquois Confederacy relations across the 1600s, you see this theme, and the chapter is entitled The Unpredictability of Violence, which draws from uh, Hannah Arendt's kind of fa uh, famous uh, studies on violence and the kind of theories of the centrality of violence to political formations. If you look at that chapter, you see very clearly that prior to French arrival and settlement in 1609 along the St. Lawrence Seaway, indigenous populations did not make war upon each other in the ways that they subsequently learned how to do. They lacked, obviously, guns and metal arms. They lacked uh, defensive uh, types of armory or kind of uh, weaponry that they would eventually uh, try to uh, develop. And perhaps most notably, they, they lacked the motivation to maraud and subjugate uh, kind of distant territories and populations, which the Iroquois, among others, began doing in very, very dramatic form throughout the 1600s. And so uh, there's an image from Champlain's first uh, kind of confront, confront military confrontation with Mohawk warriors outside of what is now Lake Champlain, New York. And uh, these communities are kind of engaged in various types of what we might call more ritualized forms of combat. Groups of uh, combating or antagonistic soldiers or warriors would gather in a kind of pre-disclosed or determined location, surround one another throughout the night, lodge insults and, you know, uh, various types of uh, verbal barbs at one another, and then gather the next day for a form of combat that conceivably might have some degrees of casualties and violent uh, repercussions. None of that is commensurate with what becomes the dominant form of military conflict throughout this region in the late and uh, 1600s, uh, mid to late 1600s, and throughout uh, uh, the century thereafter, including theaters of both the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution. One of the things that your book does is to try to centralize the experiences of Native people against a wider backdrop of what was happening during this vast history. What were the ways in which, we've talked about some of the idea of shockwaves, did these shockwaves extend back towards Europe, towards the people coming to America from Europe? Um, they did, and that's another kind of uh, prominent theme of, if I can be so presumptive, uh, you know, of my collective uh, studies so far in Native North American history. Because these shockwaves, which were often unrecorded by uh, Europeans, reverberated far beyond these actual scenes of encounter or the far beyond the actual settlements of Europeans um, in the Southwest, famously the introduction of Spanish horses and various equestrian technologies spread widely across uh, the North American plains in beginning in the mid to late 1600s. Um, in the Northeast, um, both Dutch and French um, 
technologies of violence like guns and metals spread across much of eastern North America. And indigenous populations trade, incorporate, adapt, and reconfigure particularly many of their uh, military practices and some, subsequently in the in the plains, their uh, their uh, te- technologies of travel and pastoralism to incorporate these new wondrous materials, thereby enhancing many of their capabilities and thereby often punishing or diminishing or kind of recalibrating the anticipated power of Europeans. And so one of the central themes of Native American history of the colonial era of the last generation or so has been a kind of recognition of the inherently non-asymmetrical nature of imperialism, so to speak, the kind of centrality of indigenous peoples to the making of early America through their power, through their trade, through their social and diplomatic relations, through their incorporation of Europeans into their kinship and village uh, social uh, societies, a kind of a constellation of insights have essentially uh, been offered by uh, this generation of scholars uh, whom I'm drawing upon. So the rediscovery of America as the title is not just a kind of an invitation for all of us as American or North American um, citizens and inhabitants to rethink our continent's history, but it's also a kind of recognition that uh, the American historical uh, experience has been heavily rediscovered by Uh, more than a generation of scholars to whom I'm incredibly indebted. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And we'll talk about some of the actors a bit later on. I'm calling today from England. I thought it would be remiss to not ask about the specific impact this, uh, this story had on England's colonial ambitions, if any. Yeah, one of my favourite chapters is, is uh, on the... 
kind of paradoxical outcome of the Seven Years' War in North America. I, I presume most British uh, citizens are sub, uh, more familiar with British history sometimes than North uh, than Americans. But most of my students, um, most of my um, friends, um, neighbors, and family members um, don't really have never really heard about the Seven Years' War, often called the French and Indian War in, in North America. I am um, a product of a Canadian educational system uh, for my undergraduate degree. So I, I, you know, was, you know, around uh, buildings named after uh, British royal uh, uh, leaders from this period. But generally speaking, very few uh, Americans know that the first real global um, conflict of the 18th century and according to some scholars, the most important conflict of the military conflict of the 18th century is the Seven Years' War, which breaks out in the interior of North America uh, with a kind of failed uh, colonial expedition led by George Washington against some increasingly fortified French um, um, uh, forces and kind of um, uh, uh, fortifications along the Ohio River. Um, and this kind of war spreads um, like mushrooms kind of unexpectedly across uh, much of the Atlantic and even the Mediterranean, there, uh, South Asia, there's a battle in Manila, you know, France uh, and, and later Spain um, kind of confront England and this kind of global kind of a slugfest that ultimately erodes France's North American empire at the Treaty of Paris in, I think, February of 1763, whereby France transfers all of its North American possessions, which predate uh, English uh, colonization largely, um, to the victorious uh, uh, British crown under, uh, I think, parliamentary leader William Pitt. And so, all of a sudden, in 1763, in the early years, uh, Britain has inherited this massive empire and has just concluded the world's most successful uh, global conflict. And so how does this empire, which seemingly has become so profoundly and unexpectedly powerful, lose control of not just its, uh, and its transferred territory from New France, but um, much of it, uh, it will retain as... Your listeners may know much of Canada, <laughs> called Upper and East, uh, Lower Canada after the American Revolution. But how does England essentially um, lose its vast kind of American possessions or many of them? And so I kind of think, as do many in my field, that you can't really tell the narrative of American independence outside of not just the conflict, obviously, with England, but the kind of multipolar, multi-imperial uh, and indigenous world of the Seven Years' War and its aftermath. And so th there's a lot in um, chapters four, five, and six about um, this interior world and the kind of many deep ironies and paradoxes that ultimately uh, bred American independence. So did this this uh, feed into or precipitate the American Revolution? Can we say that? I can, and I do, and we can, and we should, because the first shots against English soldiers fired in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War are fired in western Pennsylvania against British troops who are protecting overland British traders. I mean, these are all British subjects at the time. Uh, but the revolutionaries are, uh, there's a series of what I call settler militias that have formed in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. And why they're so concerned, and it's a little technical, again, it involves a military conflict that very few 
people have heard of called Pontiac's War, which erupts in the fall of 1763, or in the summer, I'm sorry, of 1763, and it's followed by the proclamation of the Royal Proclamation of 1763 in October. So three monumental things happened in 1763. A, in the, I think it's February, the Treaty of Paris, or at least news of the Treaty of Paris arrives to North America. B, uh, the interior native peoples who have been kind of left out of the negotiations between France and England essentially uh, confront um, British imperial rule militarily and politically and defiantly, and they burn nine of the 13 forts that the British have inherited from the French across what I call the Native Inland Sea or what others have called the Native Inland Sea, uh, which are the five uh, Great Lakes of uh, interior North America from which both the Mississippi and the St. Lawrence both flow and the kind of constitutes the kind of nautical heartland of, um, of the continent. So the indigenous populations are not going to simply accept British dominion, having not really lost any wars of their own um, during the Seven Years' War. And so they launch a kind of series of unexpected campaigns called Pontiac's War, and they destabilize British um, imperial rule, making peace essentially more costly than war itself. And in the aftermath, the British crown establishes this proclamation and also begins establishing diplomatic and economic and various types of social uh, commitments to interior indigenous peoples that outrages Western British settlers who feel like now that the war is over, the interior should become theirs. And so overland trading supplies and kind of uh, pack trains of, of, of goods that are heading to kind of... Uh, uh, lube the wheels of diplomatic um, negotiations essentially are marauded by various sets of settler militias, some of whom have already targeted and killed Indian villages whom they suspect to be allied with the interior native, Pontiac's interior native uh, forces. So it's a really kind of complex aftermath that has been, in my mind, completely or almost entirely excised from the kind of nar tr traditional narrative on the, or on the origins of the revolution. Uh, it's perhaps helpful to know that there are very few large American cities in 1863, 1864, 1865. Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Charleston. Um, these are very small towns by our contemporary standards. Um, none has more than 20,000 people at the time. And so uh, somehow the narrative of the, of the colony's future and its kind of uh, deliberations always focuses on these relatively small seaports when the vast preponderance of British settlers, there's 1.5 million or so in 1750, live in farming, agricultural, and often interior spaces. And in these interior spaces, their concerns about indigenous peoples are paramount and much more that uh, they're much more concerned about British relations with Indian, interior Indians than they are tea or stamp uh, taxes that are being imposed in the urban merchant classes. And so it's not unsurprising, for example, that these Western Pennsylvania rebels, as one scholar calls them, are articulating a particularly revolutionary discourse that is not only anti-imperial, it's also very anti-indigenous, we might call it, where they have a just a deep like seated animosity because of this previous war that they'd gone through in which indigenous combatants were the uh, often the vast preponderance of French allies and fighting forces. There were raids and um, captive 
experiences that were pretty common in many in, uh, Western New York or Western Pennsylvania, Western Virginia type of uh, settlements. And so it's not, uh, so this discourse that is revolutionary is not just anti-monarchical or anti-imperial. It's also anti-elite. It's anti-aristocratic. Uh, people like Benjamin Franklin are initially held in suspicion by uh, Western Pennsylvania settler citizens as they increasingly become uh, seen as. And it's not unsurprising that this discourse of anti-indigeneity makes it into the Declaration of Independence, which uh, complains about the British crown's not just various forms of usurpations of power, but also how it has somehow uh, incited what they call merciless Indian savages to attack our frontier communities. So the term frontier and merciless Indian savages or those terms are, I think, a direct kind of, uh, their antecedents are found in the, these interior indigenous conflicts that by and large, most revolutionary historians have been unable to uh, bring into the kind of conventional narrative. And so as we approach the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, myself and some others are really trying to uh, foreground these historical experiences in order to really rediscover American history, so to speak. That's so interesting. Your book also explores two other um, things that I think perhaps people in Britain may not have heard of. I certainly wasn't that familiar with them, which is Jay's Treaty and the Louisiana Purchase. Could you just explain the importance of those two things? What we just discussed really concerns the events leading up to the revolution. In the aftermath of the revolution, a series of also really dramatic and transformative deliberations unfold. And it's not incoincidental that in 1783, when the Second Treaty of Paris recognizes American independence, that British Crown and Parliament are um, agreeing to, that England continues to station its soldiers um, at various North American forts. Um, England will, has retained essentially uh, what we would call Eastern Canada, um, the Hudson's Bay, its Caribbean island holdings, uh, Eastern Canadian forts uh, like Louisbourg. But it also keeps its uh, soldiers at places like Niagara and Detroit in a place called Michilimackinac, which is in northern Michigan. And there's a little ambiguity in the aftermath of uh, the American independence. Not, not a little. There's a tremendous amount of ambiguity. And many believe that this uh, political experiment is doomed to fail. And so the interior will remain a contested undetermined battle borderlands that will become a battleground in the War of 1812 when England and the United States will again go to war um, to determine essentially the future of these portions of North America. But in the interim, between 1783 and, say, 1812, the United States reconstitutes itself in 1787, abandoning its first governing structure called the Articles of Confederation. This is like technical U.S. civics uh, type of historical um, subject matter that most American high school students hear and forget about very, very quickly. And very few American college students ever spend time learning about the Articles of Confederation because they failed. And as is, I think, well understood, American historical inquiry has often uh, celebrated rather than, I don't want to say vilified, but American historians have often approached American historical development in a celebratory or somewhat we would call exceptionalistic paradigm or frame. And so American failures are not the kind of uh, subject matter of many studies or courses. But the articles 
essentially are unable to govern the 13 independent states. And the federal government is formed in much greater and stronger uh, capacity following the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Now, why, why is this really important? Because this experiment, this incredibly radical new polity, envisions a future for itself that it is ultimately not able to fully actualize. And the biggest failure in American history, at least uh, by you know, historical standards, is the Civil War. And so we kind of lose sight of the fact, if we think of the Civil War as an inevitable conflict, of how the federal government actually tries to solve many of its initial problems. And Indian affairs are one of the few areas in which most settlers or uh, uh, state leaders agree should be the exclusive domain of the federal government. Why is that important? Is because it's not only lodged into the Constitution as a, as a supreme right of the federal government, but the federal government's infrastructure for dealing with Indians actually enables it to do other things. Jay's Treaty and the Louisiana Purchase Treaty of 1803 are examples of how issues around Indian affairs come to shape American foreign policy determinations and deliberations. And so Jay's Treaty is the first formal international treaty that the United States enters into with European powers, con conducted and concluded in uh, the fall of 1794. Um, it has provisions about trade between England and United States. It has provisions about Britain essentially abandoning its um, loyalties to indigenous peoples within the boundaries of the United States and also allowing for the free passage of native peoples be between the two uh, realms. Um, and it's followed very shortly thereafter by a, uh, both a military victory by the United States against interior native peoples as well as a subsequent treaty called Greenville that uh, really kind of uh, solidifies U.S. authority across what is now the Ohio, state of Ohio. So Jay's treaty can't be or shouldn't be read as an exclusively Anglo-American diplomatic outcome, but one in which indigenous, not just affairs are involved, but the process of making treaties is one of the first and only forms of of essentially foreign policy power that the federal government has already done, both during the period of the Articles and then during the Constitution. So the, I think the first six or seven treaties that the Senate in the United States ratifies are all with Indian groups. And so in that process of learning how to make treaties with Indians, the federal government essentially learns how to make treaties with other people. Uh, there's a scholar named Margot Kennedy who has a very interesting book about how American power, essentially state power, is often uh, how it's often established through um, various forms of uh, puzzling before power is essentially implemented. So essentially the federal government puzzles around Indian affairs in order or subsequently in order to power through other treaty relationships, both with England and then more famously with France in the Louisiana Purchase Treaty of 1803. This is obviously a hugely whistle-stop tour through, through centuries of American history. We should talk about the American Civil War. Um, I think I'm right in saying that you write that um, there were groups of Indigenous people who were the first casualties, the first victims of this conflict. Is, is that right? The first casualties 
of federally subsidized units of the Civil War are California Indians killed in the spring of 1861 who are are receiving federal funding for the first time. Uh, They had previously received state funding. um, So these are not necessarily the, these are not campaigns of the Civil War. These are ongoing campaigns in California. Uh, But I make that kind of point to kind of denaturalize or recenter the struggle for North America, essentially, at the heart of the Civil War era, because the outcome of this conflict will reverberate, obviously, profoundly across the continent. And it has been largely told as a story and struggle between the North and the South, which it was as a kind of political crisis. Seven states of the American Union initially and um, uh, agreed to secede and form their own country called the Confederate States of America. And they had a very different political vision and um, political economy and um, kind of set of ideological and diplomatic practices that they wanted to establish. So my effort here is to try to intervene a bit into the kind of conventional narrative of the coming and the course of the Civil War in order to show that it both had Western antecedents and it had very powerful Western um, legacies. And and uh, you may not have been intentionally using a kind of what would we call a, a rail metaphor of whistle stops, but uh, there are kind of scenes in these chapters about the transformative impact the railroad in particular has across the 1860s. And very few people would really come to understand this, but prior to the Civil War, most of what we recognize to be the kind of modern structures of American political, technological, and even perhaps economic life did not kind of operate the way they do currently. And um, so my chapter on the Civil War opens with the Colorado Gold Rush when uh, tens of thousands of overland migrants are heading to the Rocky Mountains, and they're all coming by horse, essentially, or cattle or oxen. Um, and so animals, I write, are, are drive the you know the heart of overland travel uh, before the Civil War. And Lincoln himself, when he's campaigning in 1860, will have to take, I think, four or five different trains to get to New York City for a famous address he gives at Cooper Union in February of 1860, uh, because he's traveling across different regional railway systems that use different uh, track sizes or gauge sizes. And so he has to take a steamboat across one river and then down another, and then he's on all these different trains. It takes him four or five days to get to New York. By the end of the war, after his assassination, he travels by one railway system from Washington back to Illinois. It travels at five miles an hour so that anyone and everyone can come and witness the kind of solemnity of his uh, of his um long burial kind of procession. And so that metaphor, that those images, which are drawn from kind of famous studies of these subjects, really kind of resonated with me that um, the train didn't really exist, not, not, not only not on a continental scale, it didn't really exist even on a national scale in the United States in the ways that it would become so dominant thereafter. I would love to claim credit for doing that intentionally, but I absolutely not. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the years immediately after the Civil War. Was this a period in which the state started to exercise new control and new authority over Indigenous groups? Uh, yes, and upon all really subjects of the of the Union. These are, of course, a, a vast and deeply um, well-researched uh, subjects. Many of them. 
And the intent of this project is to try to uh, bring together uh, many kind of conventional narratives of the United States and, and assess them from the perspective of Native American communities. Um, and so there's also this kind of, um, not just the railway transformations that we just detailed, but the particularly growth of the federal government from 1860 to 1865, 1870, is just astronomically um, transformative. There are some scholars who say most American citizens would never have seen a representative of the American government before the Civil War. Maybe a governor or a territorial leader uh, periodically, but hardly ever a military officer, uh, a government employee, maybe a federal postal service member. Um, but after the war, uh, the government is just becoming a behemoth, what we call the administrative state. And so the federal government's power and authority kind of flow and kind of waves throughout the, the war itself. And then during Reconstruction, which is this 13-year period or so from um, the end of the war to 1877, when the federal government um, still occupies the South with its Union Army and attempts a series of Reconstruction amendments and, uh, and reforms to uh, uh, essentially integrate former slaves into the American political and social and economic um, uh, fabric of the nation. It's also doing a lot of things in the West. And so the federal government eventually will become um, the banker, the manager, the educator, teacher, the, uh, the, the doctor. It will essentially run all of these divisions and, uh, and departments of what we would call reservation Indian life across the post-war era. And so much of the period of Reconstruction or the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War is incorporating indigenous peoples in the West and their lands and resources into the body politic of the United States, using the railway to relocate Nez Perce Indians from uh, Idaho and um, the interior Northwest, using the railway to bring um, Apache or Modoc uh, combatants from um, Northern California or Southern Arizona bringing indigenous peoples concentrated forms in places like Oklahoma or establishing reservations through uh, the treaty pr uh, process, uh, some of which are vast and um, full of uh, resources and uh, in addition to lands. Um, it's an incredibly transformative um, period of growth as well as diminishment because one of the real um, tragedies of American Indian policy is that many of the initial efforts by the federal government to build um, autonomous, uh, self-sufficient uh, protectorates and or enclaves within the body politic of the United States fall under the purview of various social reformers in the late 19th century who attempt to erode them by bringing children away from their communities to be educated in military-style pedagogical institutions like the Carlisle Indian Institute, uh, subdividing reservation land holdings, attempting to impose religious and or uh, normative Euro-American gender uh, conventions onto native uh, populations. These practices known as assimilation constitute um, a, roughly a half century of American Indian policy uh, at the end of Reconstruction. One fact that really struck me was that native peoples were not granted U.S. citizenship until 1924. Um, was this all native people and what, what did this mean? Were there new rights granted at this point? That is correct. It was not until 1924 in the aftermath of the First World War that American Indians uh, became universally eligible for U.S. citizenship. There were efforts in that kind of half century of assimilation that I mentioned uh, beforehand to bring 
uh, the vote or uh, the franchise or various enticements of citizenship to Native peoples living in reservation and or rural communities, encouraging them essentially to abandon their loyalties or affinities to tribal communities in exchange for private property, political participation, and other potential rights like serving on serving on juries and or as eligible um, elected officials. It is an incredibly complex kind of legality to it that would um, require some understanding that many tribal community members never really aspired to become U.S. citizens. And so it was an imposition of sorts as well um, that citizenship uh, was it became a sense, essentially a necessary legality for the federal government to eventually uh, grant citizenship to Native Americans so that um, various com complex questions around border travel or um, uh, criminal uh, jurisdictions around criminal laws, uh, various types of um, um, everyday kind of political practices could be um, institutionalized. And one of the recurring themes of the 20th century um, throughout Native America has been an attempt to ensure that the political distinctiveness of Native American communities not um, be extinguished by these assimilative kind of incorporative legal uh, efforts. We've obviously talked about some huge themes, some huge episodes. One thing I wanted to make sure that I didn't do in my questions is sort of smudge or ignore any distinctiveness or diversity. Are there any stories of particular groups, or I suppose even individuals, in the 20th century that you think help us make sense of, of, of that story? Thank you for that question. Um, it is really hard in this kind of broad, sweeping, either conversation or even scholarly effort to not lose sight of just either the distinctiveness of communities themselves and or of individuals grappling with a very... Uh, sometimes overwhelming and seemingly impossible challenges. And so the last two chapters of the book, which are largely about the 20th century, attempt to bring more indigenous voices and more um, indigenous kind of biographies and or kind of leadership, studies of leadership into these eras um, and to highlight what we would call the kind of political agency, activism, and intelligence of, of Native communities who and individuals who are navigating incredibly dire and difficult circumstances. And it's not really hard uh, to find um, uh, individuals or communities in Native North America today whose uh, parents or grandparents or even themselves have struggled in ways to um, find uh, consistent forms of employment or um, maintain uh, social and uh, ceremonial and or kind of cultural connections to communities. Um, the federal government has been trying to essentially assimilate and disaggregate uh, Native communities for much of its history. And in the late 20th century, there was this policy known as re uh, termination and relocation that um, occurred throughout the Cold War era where the federal government was incentivizing American Indians to leave their communities, to migrate to cities, and essentially abandon their um, kind of political loyalties and um, to their sovereign communities at home. So how people have kind of responded to these challenges is, re is really, um, for me, um, quite revealing and in many ways inspirational. And the antecedents are not just in the more familiar forms of activism, which... There are many examples of in Native America, 
uh, but they are found on reservations and in small uh, educational efforts and artistic communities in Santa Fe. And so um, I try to highlight a series of them. And what what are the ones that are most kind of appealing to me or enduring? I take some particular inspiration by a very uh, small group of Native American political and educational intellectual leaders who who formed a society in 1911 called the Society of American Indians, which is the first national intertribal political advocacy group in Native American history. Um, and it included uh, initially um, a small number of boarding school-educated Indian leaders, including uh, Laura Cornelius Kellogg, who is an Oneida Indian a leader who had a, who had a particularly defiant and articulate and determined uh, kind of political philosophy that seemingly uh, was not going to be um, uh, forestalled by um, uh, um, uh, various either government or non-government efforts. Uh, these are individuals who understood that the United States was becoming so powerful, so populous. And so um, kind of historically unconscious, essentially, that they had to create narratives of history that counteracted them. And so many Native American intellectuals are in many ways are historians kind of almost by necessity and talk not only of their own community's history, but of other Native peoples who, whose history has been written out of the kind of political and uh, national narrative. And so they're critiquing these paradigms of disappearance and of cultural racism and various kind of presumptions about their inferiority by showing how um, educated and capable and politically astute they are. And so they form um, political associations, they lobby Congress, they publish newsletters, they form a small group of them, including the first Yale-trained Native American, um, or the first graduate of Yale University, Henry Rocloud, who's a, a Ho-Chunk Indian from Nebraska. Um, they formed their own educational institute to train Indians differently than than the boarding schools. And they are widely uh, successful in their efforts over time. I mean, their kind of political activism has not been sufficiently recognized in much of the, even the narrative of American Indian political activist history because it focused so much on the kind of more militant often, you know, revolutionary efforts to reoccupy buildings and lands in the uh, post-war era. What more work do you think needs to be done in popular re-understandings of the place of Indigenous people in the United States history? Well, I, I believe that you really can't understand the history of North America without its original inhabitants. And the edifices and monuments and um, kind of institutionalization of American historical inquiry um, and consciousness have largely done so or attempted to do so. And so uh, there is this kind of almost apparition that has kind of formed and come into recognition in the last generation or two. I say that there's a question, these questions haunt America. And we have to kind of understand that our historical consciousness needs to be unmade in order for us to really peer through these clouds of misunderstanding um, that have been kind of pervaded by popular culture and or uh, fanciful mythic um, kind of narratives in order to see a more sobering but realistic portrait of the, the continent's history. Indigenous history, ironically, having been so marginal and so kind of uh, erased or ignored for so long, 
it almost provides one of the clearest counter-narratives to American history uh, from a contact to the present in that these themes of perseverance and survival and adaptation and political advocacy and kind of legal activism uh, constitute an alternative corpus, essentially, of American historical formation that is nonetheless similarly national and revealing. And one of the great um, kind of legal ironies is that Native Americans have understood that despite all of its problems, the kind of doctrine of Native American sovereignty that the federal government has uh, kind of reluctantly come to um, articulate and uh, and uh, establish is one of the few unifying kind of political opportunities or forms of recognition that all Native peoples who are recognized by the federal government can uh, similarly occupy. So despite the diversity, there's a kind of uniform kind of national experience or a story that can be told if one kind of is able to look past these clouds or these kind of um, uh, these uh, sedimented forms of calcified knowledge and to see a new, um, an alternative understanding of America. That was Professor Ned Blackhawk. The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of US History is out now published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.